Hello again, friends, and welcome back to another edition of the 605 Super Podcast. And this is a very special edition of the Super Podcast, a look at the life and career of the Destroyer, Dr. X, Dick Beyer, who just recently passed away. And when thinking about it and trying to figure out what would be a good segment, I realized there's no way I can encapsulate this man's life and career into just one segment. So here we are with a very special episode that will look at his career with some of wrestling's leading historians. And let's go now back to when he first put on that mask, when his career really took off as the sensational intelligent destroyer in Los Angeles. And let's talk with Jeff Walton, who of course would later work in the Los Angeles wrestling office and was also president of the Fred Blassie Fan Club when he was younger. Let's go to this conversation with Jeff Walton right now. We're going to spend a few minutes in Los Angeles now and look at the Destroyer's career in Los Angeles, and specifically with the WWA, one of the major world championships at that time, and he was one of the perennial WWA champions. And if we're going to talk Los Angeles wrestling, there's no greater guest to have. Then your friend and mine, Mr. Jeff Walton. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Hey, Brian. Good to be back. And uh, not good because of the topic, unfortunately, but uh, let's, uh, let's, let's go over it. Let's go over it. I mean, you are so closely associated with Fred Blassie. Fred Blassie was there when the Destroyer came in. Tell me what you remember about the Destroyer when he first showed up in Los Angeles, and tell me whatever you know about that period of time. Well, you know, a little bit before that, uh, Fred would go to Hawaii and he'd he'd go back east and whatever. And I remember distinctly, and I was very young at the time, that he said, you know, I saw a young kid in Hawaii and uh, this kid's got such a great potential and uh, he can't get a break back east. You know, he's he's just starting out and they're, they're not using him right. And he said, uh, I've talked to him and I think I can get him to come out here to southern california i think this guy would uh make money for uh the office and uh he said i know i can make money with him and he was talking about dick buyer and at the time you know i i really didn't eh, i wasn't really interested in that i was interested in promoting fred and doing what i could with his fan club and i took fred's word that this guy was good and, you know, I, I was just a young kid, and I was just learning, you know, I was a fan, and and I was just learning about the business. So to hear Fred talk about another guy in that way, uh, it kind of went over my head a little bit. And uh, now, of course, many years later, when I start putting eight and six together and I get 20, uh, I understand <laughs> Uh, exactly what he was talking about. And in fact, I, this is the first time I'm going to say this anywhere. My love for wrestling even surpassed my enthusiasm for Blassie once the Destroyer was created here in Los Angeles. Uh, this was a man who I understood what Fred had said, but 200 times more. Because you could see this man was the all-around package. He was an athlete. He was a first and foremost a wrestler. He was an entrepreneur. And he was a lot savvier than many of the wrestlers that were in here at the time. 
and he knew how to promote himself. Now, that didn't all happen instantaneously. It happened over quite a bit of time here in L.A. And, of course, when he got to L.A., you didn't get Dick Byer. You got the Destroyer. What was the history of masked wrestlers in Los Angeles before that? Were there a lot of guys? Were there not a lot of guys? Of course, afterwards, Mil Moscaris and so many guys would come in. But before the Destroyer, what was the history of masked wrestlers in Los Angeles? Well, actually, the history of masked wrestlers, uh, there was a big history here with uh, you know the uh, the masked Mr. X uh, here. Uh, uh, Bill Miller also uh, wore wore a mask here and started wrestling here. And we're going back into the '40s, late '40s, and uh, uh, guys would come in here. And and uh, we had the preacher Clyde Steves, who was a masked wrestler and uh, a very good one. And I mean, we used masked wrestlers quite quite a bit. But none, none of them had the instant charisma of uh, the intelligent sensational destroyer. None of them. And what was amazing was uh, he didn't wear ring jackets. We didn't have music. We didn't. This man came down the ring at the Olympic Auditorium and came down the aisle got up into the ring, did a series of nip-ups, and then crossed his arms, folded, and stood there and glared at his opponent-to-be. And you were just infuriated seeing just that, you know, the arrogance of this man. And, you know, uh, the whole metamorphosis, as the referee uh, and my good friend Art Williams says, happened in San Bernardino. There's a lot of stories on how this was all created. I think the, the most logical story was when he did come in here, you know, as Dick Byer and Jewel Strongbow, who was our matchmaker, and this is not the same Jewel Strongbow that, you know, works for Vince. Jules was a former wrestler in the late 30s and early 40s. And Jules, you know, went up to him and said, get yourself a mask because you're not wrestling as Dick Byer. You're going to put the mask on and you're going to become the destroyer. And it didn't go over too well from what I understand with Dick. But he got a mask. He borrowed a mask. And uh, I think it was from Ted Christie. Ted Christie had a mask. And the mask was... Uh, made a wall and buyer couldn't see, couldn't breathe. And it was his first match in San Bernardino. And even though he went over, he came back into the locker room and said, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to wear a mask and I'm not going to do this. And Ox Anderson was in the dressing room at the time. And I know Dick has told the story and I don't recall it being, I think Dick said it happened in Texas, but uh, I recall it happening here. And the story that I heard was that uh, Ox uh, Anderson uh, had a mask and told him that the material that the mask was made out of was an elastic material. And Destroyer liked that. And of course, then he had his uh, first wife sew him up this, this new mask. So the Destroyer was born. And once Dick got into that persona, and and was able to get over with it, there was no stopping him. And another quickie story was just before he left here, after being here for two and a half, three years, I think, he had a uh, match with Blassie, and uh, the idea was to unmask the Destroyer. 
And Jules uh, said, you're going to take the mask off. And, and Dick adamantly refused. He said, I'm not taking this mask off because he knew what he had. And uh, the match took place. Blassie won. Destroyer, uh, the, the mask came off. Destroyer covered his head with a towel. And I was at that match, ran out of the ring, ran up the aisle, and he was gone. And Jules Strombo got on the uh, microphone and said, well, the Destroyer's real name is Dick Byer. But it didn't matter to anybody. It didn't, didn't matter if it was, uh, you know, uh, Dick Nixon or whoever. He, you could have called him anything you wanted, you know. Right. He was still the Destroyer. And, uh, of course, you know, uh, from here he went on to Texas and uh, spent a lot of time. I, I guess he spent at least three, four years in uh, the AWA. And, of course, the Japan thing. I just finished watching his retirement match in Japan. They were sold out. They were completely sold out. And the tears that flowed from these Japanese people, knowing that this terrific athlete and wrestler and man and entertainer was going to retire and head off into the sunset, and seeing his family get into the ring with him is, and you can see this on YouTube, by the way, uh, is just heartbreaking, uh, especially today. You brought up his charisma. I wanted to ask you about his interviews and how they stood out from the pack when he first got there, when he first started talking on camera, and also the origin of, we keep calling him the destroyer. That's a very informal way of saying it. He's the sensational intelligent destroyer. What's the origin of sensational and intelligent being associated with his name? Well, at first, that's what everybody called him. It was just the Destroyer. But then Dick, of course, decided that it would sound a lot better if he were to, to say he was not only a sensational wrestler, he was an intelligent person. So intelligent, sensational Destroyer, he would correct every announcer or everybody that talked to him that said the Destroyer. He would say, no. I'm the intelligent, sensational destroyer, and don't you ever forget it. And that would stick in your head. And, and of course, what got him over was uh, the figure four leg lock, which he had seen Buddy Rogers uh, do. Buddy did the figure four grapevine, but Dick called it the figure four leg lock. But Dick did it a whole different way. You've seen that hold today, and unfortunately, you know, it's kind of a nothing type hold now today. But years ago, that was a devastating finisher. And he would clamp that on, and then he would slap the mat with his hands, lay flat on his back. And it was a stunning thing to see because he had the legs so well locked. I mean, kids were doing it in school, and they were, uh, you know, they were getting into trouble. I mean, I think I even tried to do it in school. And, and that was an incredible thing to do. And then he'd get on the interviews, and he would say, I'll give anybody that can break my hold of figure four leg lock $5,000. And this went on and on and on. And he'd get in the ring and, and, and do this and put the hold on. And you knew that, God, you know, who could stop him? Who could, who could break his hold? And his interviews, they weren't, they didn't scream. He didn't scream. He didn't yell, didn't shout. He was, he'd start off very quietly and very firmly. And he'd look into that camera and those piercing blue eyes that he had, you know, would just stare at you. And you knew that he meant business. This was no joke to him. 
and you knew that he was serious and that everything he did was serious and that his opponent was in a lot of trouble. So his interviews were totally different from what others were doing, and they were phenomenal. Everything that Destroyer did was calculated. And it, every time I would see him, I would become more and more impressed with this guy to where years later I would say, you know, everybody used to say Lou Fez, and I saw Lou Fez wrestle here, was one of the greatest wrestlers who ever lived. But unfortunately, the destroyer, the sensational, intelligent destroyer, outdoes him way by leaps and bounds. That's a big statement there. And it's a true statement. Because when you, when you look at this man who created so much, I mean, uh, when, he, when he went to Japan, you know, after going there many years, he decided the Japanese would love hot dogs. Now, who would think of this? Who would think of that? And so what he did was he imported thousands of boxes of hot dogs. He showed people how to build these carts, the street carts, you know, like they have in New York and whatever, and sell hot dogs to the Japanese people. And it became a huge phenomenon. And the more he did that was outside the ring, the more he became known. And of course, as you talked about him in Japan, I'm sure, you know that he had that, that television show for at least three or four years, which was a comedy type of show. And he became like a god over there. I mean, I don't think there is one Japanese person there that doesn't know who the intelligent sensational destroyer is. Well, the same thing in Southern California. When he won the WWA uh, World Heavyweight Championship, it was one of the first times that a masked man had ever uh, held the title. And he defended the title oh, throughout the territory. And this, this Los Angeles and Southern California is not a big territory in itself. I mean, you could get to any one area in Southern California in about an hour and a half or two hours. The guys didn't have to travel far. I hope I've not gone over what you wanted to know about the TV interviews. Uh, the interviews were always fantastic. They always, he always knew how to put his opponent over, but not in a friendly way. But he studied his opponent, and he knew his opponent. And you, you just believed that this man was an incredible wrestler and also, uh, like I said, an outstanding talker, uh, you know, on the mic. And uh, he would draw great crowds, there's no question, uh, at the Olympic Auditorium. He really made a name for himself uh, wrestling Gorgeous George. And that came at the Olympic Auditorium. And that story is very much true. Uh, George had a bar and a, a little restaurant, and he was uh, working there in between infrequent wrestling bouts because... George, uh, you know, uh, was an alcoholic, and and it was hard. It was he was getting older, but I wouldn't take anything away from Gorgeous George. He was a tremendous worker. If you watch some of his early matches, and uh, as Dick said, he went into the bar to say hello to him one time, and George says we should wrestle each other, and uh, a destroyer said, yeah, George. George said, well, look, why don't I put up my hair, my golden locks, which was everything to him, against your mask? And uh, 
Dick really didn't want to go do something like that, figuring he'd say, well, you're going to have to take off your mask. But Dick said to him, well, you're going to lose your hair. And uh, Gorgeous George says, I need the money. And, you know, so that's the that's the other side of wrestling. You know, here you have this guy that down on his luck, but figures he can draw some money with the Destroyer. And they did. They sold out the Olympic. It's 10,400, you know, seating capacity. And uh, Destroyer, uh, two out of three fall match, went over. And uh, Gorgeous George did what he had to do. He put the Destroyer over as well and made it. And from there, you know, Destroyer wrestled uh, Freddie Blassie, and he wrestled uh, Shohei Giant Baba at the Olympic. And uh, that became well-known. And little by little, the magazines picked it up, because in those days, we didn't have the, the wrestling media and everything you have today. So you had to, you know, you, you waited. I used to say, well, how come the wrestling magazines don't have anything on the Destroyer? Well, it wasn't until months, months, I'd say six, eight months later, before Wrestling Review came out with the Destroyer on the cover. And he was he was somebody that, as an entrepreneur, you know, he put out, he, he, he started making masks. They started making copies of his masks. The masks sold like crazy. He had a lighter because, you know, smoking in those days was a big thing. So he had a destroyer lighter. That's a collectible item. Pens. Uh, everything with his his mask and his his face on it. Uh, he was just a tremendous entrepreneur. And, was he merchandising uh, himself way back then in the early 60s in Los Angeles? Was he already doing stuff back then? Yes, yes. I would say within two or three months after he he wow. got here. Uh, he always did things like that. I mean, I I was amazed, you know, but people flocked to buy his, his uh, stuff. And we weren't even doing it. The, we we didn't even have a clue as to what he was, why he was doing it. But he did it, and uh, I mean, he didn't let him do it because she said, "Oh, well, okay, he's making some extra money, I guess, a little extra money." But he was just doing it, and then he started doing it, of course, by mail order. And I think he's still doing it to a degree with uh, his website or uh, what he has. But as an entrepreneur, it's amazing for somebody like that to do that. I'll never forget the time that they had the absolute dream match. It was Ray Stevens versus the Intelligent Sensational Destroyer on a Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock at the San Diego Coliseum in San Diego. That's about a two-hour drive from L.A., and I got in the car, and I went down there and got a front-row seat, believe it or not. And they didn't fill up the arena because they only had a quick plug on the Wednesday night before. And so the arena was, was really not that full. Now, you've got to admit, Brian, that's a dream match. Especially that version of Ray Stevens early on before he beat himself up too bad. Right. This was when Ray Stevens was in terrific shape and the Destroyer, of course, in excellent shape. And they went two out of three falls. And the end result was that Ray Stevens won because I think that that's the way uh, Roy Shire wanted it. If you 
uh, used his guys, you had to put them over, you know, to a degree. So uh, the Destroyer didn't win the match, but boy, he gave Stevens a run for his money. And it was a tremendous match and one I'll never forget. Well worth the drive, you know, two hours down, two hours back up to see something like that. In fact, I took pictures of that and I still have the pictures. What other matches really stand out that Destroyer had? Obviously, the Blassie series is one that people still talk about. And there's also the Dick DeBruiser one, because Dick DeBruiser pretended that title change never happened. Then he went back and took that, and that became his version of the WWA. Yeah, right. And that happens occasionally. It, it did in those days, you know. I think the matches with uh, Baba were very important to Destroyer because that got him the in to go to Japan and for Baba to see what kind of a wrestler and how he works and, and did things. And it, it also became a lifelong friendship between the two men. And Baba, uh, Baba was a very serious worker. Uh, you know, he, he didn't do a lot of fancy holds. But when the Destroyer was in there with someone who, let's say, couldn't really wrestle, per se, with, you know, he knew how to work with him. He knew how to make the guy look good. And that's a rare, rare talent, too, putting the other guy over. Uh, it's, it's one of the rules of wrestling, you know, and you've got to make a guy look good to make the match look good. And Destroyer could do that with a broom handle. That's how good this, this guy was. He just knew everything and everything. I mean, he had a wonderful amateur background. And, you know, I mean, he was very well educated. So uh, he was a good speaker. He was a good athlete. He was a good wrestler. He was a good ring technician. Uh, he could do comedy if he had to in the ring, uh, which he didn't do that often. And uh, when he came in here, like I said, he worked dead serious. And everybody would watch every Wednesday night to see, you know, who he would get on TV. One of the big feuds he had here was with Mr. Moto, Charlie Moto. And Charlie Moto, believe it or not, at this time was a, a baby face. And, uh, of course, Destroyer the Heel. And they would have leather strap matches uh, that uh, they had off of television. You had to go down to the Olympic to see them. And they would pack the Olympic on a Wednesday night, and, and which was unusual. But because the match was off TV, everyone wanted to see it. I don't think there was really one one wrestler that, that didn't really uh, draw. Even Tricky Ricky Starr, who was, uh, he had a uh, kind of a, uh, a ballet type of a thing because he was a dancer and, uh, you know, came across uh, effeminate. But yet uh, he was a, a really, really good wrestler. And together, the Destroyer and Ricky Starr had an outstanding match. There were so many uh, wrestlers of the period that would come in and, and that he would beat. And, you know, after a while and, and toward the end of his run here in, in uh, Los Angeles, in Southern California, uh, by that time, around the country, there were other guys that got word of how good this gimmick was. And, and uh, they themselves stole the gimmick, called themselves the Destroyer and worked other parts of the country. But, you know, uh, often imitated, but never duplicated. 
And that was the intelligence sensational destroyer. My favorite mask of all time, and maybe one of the most easily identifiable masks in wrestling history. And and that and rightly so. And again, that was another unique feature because the destroyer could have gone and 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 gotten the mask as uh, the masks that they laced up, you know, in the back and whatever, or gone to Mexico and had a mask. But no, he wanted something different. He wanted something that identified himself as this character to be his. And knowing that. Uh, it would be identified uh, anywhere he went, you know, not to mention being able to duplicate these masks and sell them to the fans. You weren't a fan unless you had a destroyer mask, whether you loved them or hate them. You know, as far as an impact goes, I would say he's probably the greatest uh, mask wrestler that, that ever lived or ever worked. And uh, I would argue with anybody about anybody else being the greatest masked wrestler that ever lived or, or worked. And that's a funny story, too, because when we used to get together, uh, he we used to call me the Lancaster promoter. Now, I've never promoted in Lancaster, and <laughs> Lancaster is a little city that's northeast of Los Angeles. It takes about an hour and a half to get out there. And it's a desert area. And uh, I never ran in Lancaster. But for some reason, whenever we talked, he'd say, oh, it's my good friend, the Lancaster promoter. Hey, I can't work this week. You know, I got to take a bath. And uh, I used to laugh, you know. So one day I was at the uh, Fabulous Moolah's uh, conventions that she had years ago, the uh, Ladies International Wrestling Association. And uh, I asked if I could present the award to the Destroyer because I'm such a big fan. I'm probably his number one fan. And she said, oh, yeah, that would be nice. That'd, that would be great. So I got up there and I said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I said, the Destroyer has yet to wrestle in Lancaster. But I said... Uh, I know I can get the masked man to come to Lancaster and wrestle for me. And I looked out at Dick and he kind of shook his head, you know, like, no, <laughs> uh, I, I know. And I said, I know that the masked man who is a good friend will do this promoter a big favor by coming in and wrestling in my little town of Lancaster and Dick shaking his head. No, you know? And then I said, and I just want to tell you the masked man is none other than Mil Mascaras. <laughs> he stood out for me. He, he looked at me like you son of a, you know, like that. So every time that I would see him and, and he'd say, it's the Lancaster promoter. And I'd say, so when do you think I could get Mil Moscaris, the masked man, to come to Lancaster and wrestle for me? And that was our kind of little running joke over the years. You know, uh, if you go on YouTube and, and you see some of the matches, and I wish some of the fans listening to this will do that. Go on to your phone or go on to your your iPad or whatever you have and go on to YouTube and they have matches there that go back to Ricky Dozan and and they've got matches against Mil Moscaris and I mean you'll find anything 
can on the destroyer and if you just watch some of these matches and you don't have to watch the whole thing but if you just watch a few i guarantee you you'll be hooked on seeing the destroyer in action because this was a guy that and also listen to his interviews his interviews are just super they're just really super and that's for the time period i whether they would go over today i can't say but i know then they drew big houses, and it was because of he knew what to say, when to say it, how to say it, uh, how to get himself over, but more important, how to get his opponent over. As Jeff just mentioned right there, the Destroyer had legendary matches in Los Angeles with Giant Baba, as well as Ricky Dozan, and it's those matches that really put him on the map in Japan. And we're going to talk, of course, about that with Japan's leading historian, our friend, Fumi Saito. Let's go to this conversation right now. I am very happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast, your friend and mine, straight from Tokyo, Japan, the premier Japanese wrestling historian, Fumi Saito. Fumi, welcome back to the show. Hello from Tokyo. (laughs) Hello. Once again, uh, Fumi, it's great to have you on this show. And, you know, we always talk about Japanese wrestling history every time you're on. And today we're going to talk specifically about one of the biggest figures in Japanese wrestling history. And that is the Destroyer, who, of course, just passed away. And I guess the first thing I do want to ask you about is the coverage it's received. Since the Destroyer passed away, how much press coverage has it received in the mainstream press versus the wrestling press? Both mainstream and wrestling press, yes. Every major network's television's primetime news covered it. You know, Channel 4 NTVs, Channel 6 TBS, Channel 7 TV Asahi, Channel 8 Fuji Television, every single network's television covered this news with, you know, video footage and everything. And, uh, yeah, they gave good three to five minutes on primetime news. That's one thing. Okay, that's big, right? And also what was funny was that pretty much every single news anchorman in the middle age, of course, right? They're famous people. Every single news anchorman admitted that they used to put figure four leg lock on his friend when they were kids. <laughs> Not funny? I did too. But, uh, you know, figure four leg lock, you know, is something you try at, in, in school, classroom, your homeroom, you know? And, uh, yeah, it's one of the things. And also every single real newspaper, no, well, I shouldn't say any real, but, the, you know, like a Yomiuri you know, newspaper, the Asahi newspaper, Mainichi newspaper, every single major newspaper covered it in your sports section and in people section, in the news section, obituary. And so two days coverage, every single, every single major newspaper in country. And of course, uh, every single sports paper, you know, then in the tabloid that you you can pick up at the train stations and subway stations around the country. Every single one of those covered it in, in front page. Yes. Yeah, so it was new, you know, huge, huge, huge news. You know, in many ways, it's felt like lately the end of an era for Japanese wrestling with various things happening from the announcement that Jushin Liger's retiring to the Abdullah the Butcher retirement mm. ceremony and the Giant Baba uh, memorial mm. show. It's really felt like a, like a change in the guard. Yeah. And, you know, now the Destroyer passed away. The Destroyer is one of the last people that goes back to Ricky Dozen. Yeah, yeah, because he pretty much out, outlived everybody else. Yes. Yeah, much like Luth, you know, Luthes 10 years ago. Yeah. Very first tour, 
was 1963, and it was still black and white TV, and it was against Ricky Dozan. And uh, he came in as a WWA World Heavyweight Champion. And, uh, yeah, it was an instant hit. You know, somebody that... Uh, see, in 1963, Ricky Dozan was having already had a 10-year run as a major superstar. Pretty much every single American superstar who came over here, he beat him, right? But um, Destroyer, uh, Ricky Dozen did not beat Destroyer. Ricky Dozen pretty much challenged Destroyer's WWA World Heavyweight title, and it was like a double countout and a DQ finish. And also he introduced figure four leg lock, and they did something real special. I, I'm sure you've seen the photos. They set the photos in video camera from above the ring. So they can shoot the figure for leg of leg lock from above. I'm pretty sure that you've seen a picture yeah. destroyers putting figure for leg lock on Ricky Dozan and the photo was from above and destroyers white mask, of course, you know. He was bleeding from inside the mask and the mask will slowly turn color, you know. And uh, a real famous historical scene. And uh yeah, and also Ricky Dozan it was Kind of hindsight thing, you know, hindsight thing that uh, Ricky Dozan was so smart that he sold figure four leg lock so much that, you know, wow, the Ricky Dozan screaming so much, it must be a really devastating wrestling move, you know. And also, he educated wrestling audience by turning this, you know, it, I don't know if it, it works or if it's true or not, but it kind of works. But the, when you turn figure four leg lock, backward and you turn then the one who's putting the hold will hurt you know you know the what I'm reversal saying? yes reversal yeah so he introduced that um reversal of figure for leg lock you know real carefully and educated audience go, turn it turn it you know then then just, it was so <laughs> smart ricky dozen part but uh yeah because if Ricky Dozen's screaming so much in pain that oh this is you've never seen something like this and the mask, the figure four leg lock, reverse figure four leg lock, all these things. And also putting Ricky Dozan as cha- challenger's position. And it was like, well, probably there was no concept of like marketing or anything like that, you know, but uh, marketed so well. And he was one of the very first wrestlers who had two tours in one year. Way back when, in early 60s, wrestlers, American superstars, Maybe only came once a year or maybe once in a lifetime, right? But uh, Dick Bayer, the Destroyer, was first wrestler who had regular tours. In 1963, he came in spring and he came back in November twice. And actually, the Destroyer was the very last opponent of Ricky Dozen before he passed away. What about the big television rating? Isn't it the most watched wrestling match, or at least it was... Actually, it stands out still today, 50 years later. You know, there's a Nielsen ratings and a video research ratings. They don't even talk about TV ratings anymore. Do you in your country? We don't because the TV, the, the whole concept of TV rating is like when you had maybe five channels ratings and sharing you know you know like a share presentation and all that um tv rating research started in 1962 and the record they have all the record and you can actually look it up too but uh after 50 years two matches of 
only two wrestling matches uh, still in the record. Today's, you know, today meaning like today's, you know, Olympic game or World Cup soccer game or your night, late night, some show, the, the all kinds of show, right? But two matches still stands in top 50 of all television history, though, all television history, top 50. Ranking four is Ricky Dozen destroyer match from November of 1962. It was 64 rating, percent rating. Another match is st- still in, another match still in top 50 of today's rating record, though, is 1965 destroyer Toyo Nobori match a year later. Is, that was like a 51% rating in prime time on Friday. That to those two records still in the record today. Today meaning like 2019. That record still in, in the you know in the official record. Two wrestling matches. Ricky Dozen match and turnover match both involves the destroyer. That's strong. Who deserves the credit for pulling that rating? Who was the public really interested in? Was it more Toya Nabori or more the destroyer? I'd say it's a uh, combination of um combination of things because it was a year after Ricky Dozen's passing, and uh, the torturers passed to short-lived. But uh, Toyo Nobori was going to be the the star of the wrestling company, and it was Toyo Nobori challenging Destroyer's WWE World Title, and also it was Color, you know, very beginning of like real early stage of Color Television. See, Ricky Dozen's 64 rating 1963 match with Destroyer was black and white still. TV was black and white. And in 65, and the wrestling was one of the very first programming. If you remember, God, we must sound old, huh? Some TV <laughs> shows were color and some TV shows are still black and white, right. you know? Yeah, and then, uh, or maybe like, uh, like when I say leave it to Beaver or something, and they say, what? Right? <laughs> you must be really <laughs> old or something. But some of the TV shows, you know, while they are still on the air, black and white program became color while they are still on the air. But uh, wrestling was like that. Wrestling and baseball became one of the, you know, like very first color program. And uh, Destroyer against Toyota Body was color. Maybe that had a lot to do with it. But Destroyer was really, really popular by then. And, you know, he was very last opponent, you know, right before, like a week before Ricky Dawson's passing. And actually, that uh, it's a legend and almost like a urban legend thing. But on uh, December 2nd in, this, in Tokyo, in December 4th in Osaka, Destroyer had two matches against Ricky Dawson, okay? It, it was for Ricky Dozen's international heavyweight belts. And uh, the, the tour ended on December 7th of that year, 63. The next day, 8th, Ricky Dozen from, from Hamamatsu, he came back to Tokyo and went to nightclub. And that was the night he got stabbed. And they were kind of almost like a, a lot of truth. But some myth, urban legends in it, and I don't know which one's the whole truth and nothing but truth and entirely truth or anything like that. But the legend says that if Destroyer, you know, Dick Bayer went out with Ricky Dozan that, that night and didn't go to that nightclub, Ricky Dozan wouldn't have been stabbed. 
that was like the night after the long tour was ended and they took the train back to Tokyo and Dick Bayer and Ricky Dozen and whole entourage were, you know, they were going to go out and have dinner or something. And uh, for some reason, Dick Bayer did not join this night clubbing that night. And uh, decades after that, Dick Bayer was still talking. If, you know, he and I went out to, you know, different places that night, that would never happen. And, uh, you know, so uh, he, um, he openly talked about that, you know. So uh, that was a part, yeah, very historical. If, but this is all ifs, you know, that, you know, if Dick Bayer and Ricky Dozen and the whole entourage went out to different places or different restaurants that night and didn't stop at the Akasaka uh, nightclub, and none of those things would have happened, you know. And then, uh, but it is, those are ifs. But something we can talk about for a long time. It was still JWA, Ricky Dozen's company, and after Ricky Dozen passed, Toyonobori was the top guy. And like I said, Toyonobori Destroyer had this, you know, program. And Baba took over international heavyweight title, you know, Rick Dozen's inherit, you know, biggest championship in 1965. 1965 on, Destroyer kept coming back for JWA. And there were famous 1969 title match, Giant Baba against Destroyer. JWA company, you know, that old company still existed. We got to fast forward the history a little bit here. Giant Baba opened his own All Japan Pro Wrestling uh, September of 1972, 72, okay? And the very second tour, Destroyer was already with All Japan. And so pretty much Destroyer witnessed the end of the old company, JWA, and uh, he was always friends with Baba, and um, he pretty much joined All Japan upon their opening. I remember that vividly. Yeah. Was that a big deal when he jumped to All Japan? Actually, even I was like, I was like a fifth grade or something, but I sensed it, that it was an, it was like an end of an era for JWA company. Because just as soon as, as upon Giant Baba's opening of All Japan Pro Wrestling, Channel 4, NTV, Nippon Television, switched the affiliate from JWA to Giant Baba's All Japan Pro Wrestling. So Baba had network television show, primetime network, network television show, when he opened the company. So more general audience television viewer probably didn't even notice the company was changed. You know what I'm saying? The people who were watching this Friday night well, they switched to Saturday night after that. But the primetime wrestling show that the Giant Baba was on up until like six months ago, and something happened, it didn't air for like six months, and came back with All Japan Pro Wrestling and, you know, new tag and a new company logo and all these famous American wrestlers, and Giant Baba is the main, main guy. And uh, pretty much it signed the end of a JWA. It went, down, it went under, you know, shortly after. So all Japan pro wrestling became major wrestling company pretty much right away. And Destroyer was on Baba's second tour. The first tour had people like Bruno San Martino, Freddie Blassie, Dory Funk Sr., and Terry Funk, Dominic Tenucci, all these famous people. Not all, but very good lineup. And second tour, they already had Destroyer. And Destroyer was babyface upon arrival without even turning because he was really famous. He already had 10 tours or so before that. 
And uh, I was excited, you know, Destroyer came, you know. So, yeah, he was already babyface without turning. And uh, we have to go over this very important portion of history that he was very first American who joined in Japanese company and fought with Japanese side. You know, it used to be Japanese against foreigner, right? And uh, Japanese size baby face and all the foreigner international superstars are somewhat heel. Not entirely because, you know, people like Bruno San Martino, you know, people look at him as hero. You can't be. Yeah. And also, you look at Dory Funk, he never worked like heel, you know. And uh, they are such meal maskers, you know, people like that. But um, Destroyer was so important that he, uh, now we can call it angle and the storyline, all that. But uh, at the time, you know, nobody called it storyline or angle, you know, it was a big angle. He came on TV and announced it. Uh, we'll have this very important single match against Giant Baba. If I lose this match, I will join Baba. And we didn't understand that. Joining Baba, was that supposed to mean? Joining Baba meant he will be an official member of All Japan Pro Wrestling, you know? And, uh, wow, it's, it's kind of like, I, it felt like some Major League Baseball player came to Japanese baseball and hit, you know, and became the, the, the team member. Does that make sense? A uh, little bit of t- t- tiny detail, but the very first major program all J- Giant Baba's All Japan had in 1972 was that as upon opening of company, they were going to announce that uh, crowning a new world heavyweight championship. Of course, like a new title, new championship belt. Ricky Dozan's widow came to the, came to ring and gave Giant Baba this Ricky Dozan's old international belt, which looked exactly like you know, Lufes belt, you know? Well, they look a lot like WWE belt, you know, like those rings kind of thing. They're kind of teeny belt, but uh, very historical, you know, physical belt. Ricky Dawson's widow came to the ring and gave it to Giant Baba. And they were going to crown and use this as a new world heavyweight championship. But the Baba wanted to go through this. I am not going to just claim to be the new world champion. Oh, we're going to have, you know, world-class worthy opponents. And we have 10 matches, which were like, was held like in five-month period between November of 1972 to spring of 1973. Single match opponent of Baba was like a Bruno San Martino, Terry Funk, Abdul the Butcher, and of course, Destroyer, Welber Snyder, Don Leo Jonathan, Pat O'Connor, Boba Brazil, and people like that. And Baba beat each and every one of those people and became, they don't be, became PWS because uh, right after this tournament thing, st- big storyline thing, Lord James Blairs came from Hawaii and uh, announced the formation of PWF. Well, the PWF title still exists today, but that's Pacific Wrestling Federation who recognized Giant Baba as our world heavyweight champion. Then they joined NWA, okay? National Wrestling Alliance, NWA. It joined NWA, and PWF World Heavyweight title became Pacific Wrestling Federation champion. So that was the story. Anyway, that uh, Giant Baba's uh, first group of opponent included Destroyer. That was the match that I announced it. If I lose this very important single match, I will join Baba. And uh, he lost uh, the match, and uh, 
yeah, that was, uh, I believe it was December of 1973. And he, he went home once in the spring of 1973. He actually moved his entire family to Japan. You know, three kids, Monochris, Cart, and Richard. Three kids, young still, they're going like a grade school in junior high. They moved to Japan and he, they actually lived in Japan for like the next seven years. It was really incredibly like, um, there's a real big thing, you know? Was that the period of time where he became a bit of a celebrity on comedy shows or various television shows? Between 1973 and they were there until like the end of 1979. And three kids all graduate high school from here. And they spoke fluent Japanese with no accent. He writes and reads Japanese. And that was the time Destroyer was on, uh, on the comedy shows and TV commercials and other things. The package of your candy bars. And actually Destroyer was very, very much marketing genius himself. You know, before, like decades before, there was a concept of March. They, they always say March now, huh, for the merchandise. You know, March, March, March. Destroyer always, always sold his mask for like a children-sized Destroyer mask, you know, because kids want to wear. And Destroyer always had Destroyer t-shirt. Before there was concept of figure, an action figure, Destroyer was selling his Destroyer dolls. Not that great looking, you know, that there were hands and, you know, arms <laughs> and elbows and doesn't boot. Not like today's action figure, like right. your WWE action figure. But it was like a, we call it a soft vinyl, like a, made by vinyl, like, you know, plastic vinyl. But still, it was kind of cute doll, you know. So Destroyer dolls, Destroyer candy bars, the uh, uh, T-shirt, of course, and a miniature size mask. Uh, yeah, he was, I mean... He, Giant Baba, probably the part of the reason that the Giant Baba started the you know different company called Giant Service just to sell March, maybe Dick Bai had a lot to do with it. Yeah. Did you guys get any Doctor X merchandise over in Japan? No, no. He um, probably it's like interesting because I was you know more reading oriented wrestling fan as a kid too so you know you would want to read everything about it right and i knew of dr x and his mask and different costume and everything else but destroyer never was dr x in japan it was always always destroyer so you couldn't get a mask so, you couldn't so get a dr sold. x mask no not until i went to minnesota <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> But, but the destroyer was really, really famous. So joining all Japan side is an automatic, like super famous and also legitimate, you know, like a superstar wrestler and also veteran and TV celebrity, right? That he automatically baby faced. So he made Abdul the Butcher bigger heel. And uh, there was also, yeah, uh, b before I forget, there was a 10-man series of who is the best mass dresser in the whole in the world program. It was like a two-year period between 1974 to 1976. They invited 10 famous mass wrestlers. And, oh, naturally, Destroyer will beat each and every one of them. There was Mill Maskers. Oh, he didn't unmask Mill Maskers, of course not. But the single match program against, yeah, Mill Maskers. The second opponent was called Tornado, like a tornado. Um, actually, that was Dick Murdoch with mask. Uh, tornado, he beat Tornado and unmasked him. Oh, Dick Murdoch. 
the third uh, <laughs> opponent was the Avenger. The Avenger. Oh, who is the Avenger? Destroyer beat him and mask him. He was Moose Morowski. Oh, wow. Right? <laughs> and there was like a Barracuda. Yeah, and then the Barracuda came in and it was a, you know, Mario Milano from New Zealand. A veteran, you know. Australia, oh, and, yeah. Yeah, Mario Milano. Oh, the Australian, yeah. He was underneath the Barracuda mask. Oh, my God. And first was uh, Calypso Hurricane. Calypso Hurricane was Cyclone Negro, of course, you know. <laughs> yeah. He yeah, had the program there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good ones, right? Yeah. And Mr. Wrestling, of course. You can't forget Mr. Wrestling. And Tim Woods, of course, you know. He had a you know, very classic wrestling match. Destroy a beat him. Then there was a spirit. The black mask, black trunks, black boots. Who is this guy? He sticks his, some metal objects into his mask and headbutts people. Oh, my God. That, the spirit was Killer Carl Cox. Pretty big one, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then the Black Devil was a short program, a little bit of more complicated program. They sent Black Devil one. The first one was a fake Black Devil. Destroyer and mask him just to find out it was Emmanuel Soto or somebody, you know. No, no, no. The photo <laughs> of Black Devil was much bigger person than this guy. And then the next door, the real Black Devil comes in. That guy was a Blackjack Moose or somebody. And uh, yeah, of course, Destroyer beat him. Then the Blue Shark came. The Blue Shark was uh, H. Dan Miller. But uh, Destroyer you know, beat Blue Shark. That was like during the time that the, the movie Jaws was out, you know, Jaws was big. So you need to have, they wanted to have a shark gimmick guy, right? At least once. Blue Shark was Stan Miller. Then the very last opponent was the Super Destroyer. You know, of course, Don Jardine. But uh, they made a big deal. The very last opponent was Super Destroyer against The Destroyer. And yeah, Destroyer beat him, who was figure four, and unmasked the guy. And uh, there he was, the best masked wrestler in the whole world. What about the feud between Mil Mas- I don't know if feud's the right word, but what about the program between Mil Mascaris and the Destroyer? Uh, yeah, then actually it was this the very first match of the 10 Mask Guy program, and they brought in Mil Mascaris first. And it was my child, you know, childhood experience, <laughs> too, that uh, two, when, when the two superstars meet, there isn't going to be finish. The first one was, I think it was, um, they did the very complicated finish when Mil Maskers tried to leapfrog, right? And uh, leapfrogged, you know, and then uh, Destroyer's head accidentally hit Mil Maskers' groin, and he got knocked out or something. And uh, Destroyer did not want to accept the win. And then so it was like a no contest. Very interesting, huh? And uh, the other one was that, uh, yeah, count out ring. You see, normally Japanese r- rules are that counting outside the ring is 20 instead of 10 in America, right? You count 20, you know, when wrestlers go outside the ring. But on the, it was PWF rule that count outside the ring was 10 count instead of normal 20 count. And Mil Maskers misunderstood it, and he got count out. Very good finish, don't you think? That way Mil Maskers yeah. gets to keep his yeah, mask. But, but, <laughs> yeah, that too. Then also never get one to get pinned one to three. That's right. But this story is somewhat won. Oh, so, so he learned something as a kid, you know, right when the two, two big superstars meet, you know, it's not going to be, a, I wouldn't say finish, like I do now, but uh, there's not going to be a clean, like, ending, you know, and then you kind of learn about wrestling then. 
What about the Destroyer and Don Leo Jonathan? Oh, it was during 1975 Open Tournament. Yes, because you probably just watched it on YouTube, huh? Yeah, I was watching that yesterday as well. That uh, It was 1975, and Destroyer was already 45, maybe, and Don Leo Jonathan was like 43. But uh, they worked real well still, and uh, they were doing things way ahead of their time. I'm talking about high spots. You know, monkey flip, you know, and then you flip over and you stand, you know, on, you know, big guy John, Jonathan keep big drop kick and, and uh, you know, destroy your fly out of the ring, all those things. A very innovative spot. But it wasn't the program. It was one of the very, well, one of the matches during the tournament. So it was somewhat overlooked. That's why we have to go back there and study the tape now, 40 years later, you know, more like 45 years later, yes. But those are how they created PWF Championship, and that's a big part of all Japan and, you know, that the Giant Baba's history and Destroyer was a big part of that. And also this 10-man mask guy thing, and also Superstar Destroyer actually moving his whole family and, uh, you know, when you say, you know, I'm joining, you know, Giant Bob and All Japan, I wasn't sure what, what he really meant, you know, like uh, make a tag team with Giant Bob. Of course he did too, but uh, not just that, but he was committed, you know, was, he actually moved his entire family to Japan and he had life here and he learned the language and sent his, you know, his you know, kids to you know Japanese school and just a part of big part of a community and you know this is the whole yeah this he had this long history in Japan this is what I'm saying yeah that is why it's still people like he actually retired in in, in Budokan Ring 1993 as well now it's 25 years ago but way before 1993 he was practically essentially retired. But he kept, you know, he was always back in Japan, like every summer for children's amateur wrestling program, community, or go to camp with Destroyer or Destroyer's mini park golf thing, or there's a, you know, like a street party, block party thing in the parts of Tokyo that Destroyer always had his merchandising table. And he was involved in so many different things. I mean, after he was retired and he always kept a mask on. So he was a Destroyer. Kind of like your Batman or Spider-Man or something, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And he has to be that person, you know? Yeah. Always kept that white mask in public and we learn another thing it's like wow because we get old or we age but destroyer look like destroyer and uh, under, under that mask of course he you know aged and he got old and everything but uh, with that mask yes he will forever be the destroyer so it's a good thing it's a real good thing what do you think his legacy is amongst yeah. the foreign wrestlers that would come to Japan? What is his legacy and what is his place in Japan? Yeah, I, I knew I knew you were going to ask that. Yeah, I knew you were going to ask. Yeah, but the, it is just not fair to compare your, you know, different heroes and different superstars from different era. He was already a major league mainstream superstar when television was black and white. 
and he was, you know, during very, you know, early stage of professional wrestling, you know, had a big, huge program against Ricky Dozen and Black and White TV. In fact, a couple of nights ago on Prime Night Television, you know, primetime news on networks, they were using that black and white Ricky Dozen footage for 10 seconds. This is a guy that's like a beginning of television and beginning of wrestling, and he was the biggest superstar, the destroyer, and Ricky Dozan couldn't even beat him, and that kind of thing. And they were still showing that black and white footage. Then that they turned that video footage into color version. So you see 70s evolution, 80s, you know. And this, he pretty much evolved his status with time, too. And, uh, yeah, he stayed with it. What a celebrity, yeah. Yeah. To, among other, yeah. So I don't think it's fair to compare Dick Bayer with people like Stan Hansen and Bruce Brody because it's a completely different era. And Stan Hansen, maybe in ring and records and the title reign and uh, that the number of tours he had or number of matches who've been witnessed by number of fans, maybe Stan Hansen had longer career, you know. But um, and also Stan Hansen choose not to be a t- you know like television celebrity like Dick Byer choose you know Stan Hansen was never on game show a quiz show or he was on commercial yeah TV commercial a number of times and he appeared on a couple movies cameo but on uh, Destroyer Dick Byer was more like your like a TV superstar too you know he choose that and uh, yeah through Ricky Dozen air there were two superstars. American superstars, Destroyer, Dick Bayer, and Freddie Blassie, two superstars, okay? Both Ricky Dozen's big rival. And Baba's big, big, you know, one of the biggest rival, of course, Destroyer. And in between, there was single match between Destroyer and Antonio Inoki in 1971, too. So that was famous, too. And, uh, yeah, I'll still, ra- you have to rank Dick Bayer in the, 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 one of the very, very top foreign, you know, superstars. But uh, unfortunately, today's kids don't know who he was, you know? Yeah. So maybe I think this is our role, you know, like this is our turn to not teaching, but to let these today's audience, you know, people who were born in 1990 or, or the kids who were born in year 2000 or something like that, we are going to teach uh, not a teach, but, uh, you know, inform the legacy, you know, of Destroyer Dick Buyer in Japan and what he meant, how big of a figure he was, and he still is. And uh, this is our responsibility to, you know, keep his legacy in, 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 in the print and in a program like this and writing and wrestling magazine and other media. You know, history is important. Yeah. It's been discussed several times already today about the Destroyer's understanding of merchandising, seemingly before almost anyone else in wrestling had the same understanding. And it was a regular sight in a wrestling magazine to see an ad to buy a Destroyer t-shirt or a Destroyer mask, as well as a mask of Dr. X or a t-shirt of Dr. X, the other great mask gimmick of Dick Beyer. And if we're going to talk Dr. X, Of course, we're talking about the AWA, and that gives me a chance to talk with our good friend, wrestling historian George Shire, all about Dr. X in the AWA. I am happy to welcome back to the Super Podcast today a great friend of the show and one of wrestling's premier historians, George Shire, to talk all about Dick Beyer, the Destroyer, 
Dr. X, but someone who I know, George, he was one of your very favorite, if not your very favorite wrestlers of all time. So, George, welcome back to the show. It's always great to be on with you, Brian. I appreciate you having me on. And to answer your question shortly, uh, Dick Beyer was my all-time personal favorite wrestler. And you know I had many personal favorite wrestlers. and I liked, I liked a lot of wrestlers, but Dick was number one. I want to talk to you a little bit about your relationship in a little bit, but let's go back to the beginning. Obviously, before he got to the AWA, before he became Dr. X, Dick Beyer, the Destroyer, received great coverage in the magazines. He had such a striking image. That mask, my favorite mask of all time, was such an iconic look. Do you remember when you first saw him? Do you remember when you first learned about the Destroyer? Oh, I learned about him when I was about, uh, I would have been 12, 10, 11, 12 years old, right in there. He became the Destroyer in January of 1962. And... You know, Dick told me the story personally one time that it was it was all sort of by accident on his part. He had been wrestling in Japan in uh, Hawaii as Dick Beyer. And the one thing we should point out is that before 1962, from about 1955 on, Dick Beyer wrestled as himself. He was a great amateur wrestler. He had a great knowledge of the wrestling business. He was a baby face. And he really didn't have anything special about him. He, he was just another run-of-the-mill wrestler. So he's in Hawaii. And Freddie Blassie sent word back to the promoters in Los Angeles that there was a guy here that you should bring into L.A. And this was Bayer. And Bayer got word that they wanted him. He goes to L.A. He actually thought that he was going in as himself. And as wrestling goes, uh, sometimes the promoters, and many times in that era, they would bring a guy in and sort of want to do what they wanted to do with him, something different. Well, they advised Dick when he came in that he was going to be under a, a mask as and calling himself the Destroyer. Dick had never done this before. And Dick told me, he says, you know, I told him that uh, I'm not going to do this. They gave him a suit to wear. And he explained that the suit they wanted him to wear, it was, had a crotch in it that it buttoned, and it had a hood over his head and his face. And he said it felt like a gunny sack that potatoes come in. So if you can use that visualization. And he wore it into the ring. He said he sweated so badly he couldn't see out of the holes in the in the face on the mask, and it was the most absolute uncomfortable thing he'd ever had on. He did the one match, and he leaves the ring, and he said, I go back to the locker room, and I took the damn thing off, and I threw it over in the corner, and I said, that's it. I'm done. I'll never wear that thing again. It was just too uncomfortable. Well, there was a wrestler sitting in the locker room by the name of Ox Anderson. And Ox had, in the previous territories he'd been in, worn a mask. So he dug into his duffel bag there, and he pulled it out, and he said to Dick, he said, Dick, try this. And Dick put the mask on over his face, and it was sort of an elastic type material and it fit a little bit better than obviously that thing he had just worn in the ring. 
and he really said, you know, this is this is pretty good. This this fits good. I can see. I can breathe. And Ox told him that it was made out of a woman's girdle, which was a stretchy type material. So Dick, along with his wife Wilma, and I I'm going to point this out as a side note because I've always found this funny. His first wife's name was Wilma. And later on, he had married another woman named Wilma, who is his current wife to this day when he passed. And uh, I always chuckled that how ironic is it that a man would be married twice and both would be named Wilma, not a popular name. And up until I had heard the name Wilma, I'd only seen it as Wilma Flintstone on the TV show. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, but anyway, he and Wilma, first Wilma, uh, went to the Woolworths department stores out in L.A., and Dick went around and was buying up women's girdles. And they took them home, and Wilma sewed and made several masks. And what she did was she would put different color trim. And anybody who's familiar with the Destroyer, you know how his mask looks. So he's got the trim around the eyes, and there's a, a line that goes over the top of the head, and then he's got the mouth, and it's this white mask with a red trim or a blue trim or a green trim, whatever it is. And he had several different colors made up, but it was definitely a stretchy material that allowed him to tie it in the back under his neck, and wrestlers could pull on it and yank on it, but they could never get it off. and that became that famous destroyer mask that you speak of. Well, George, you're living in Minnesota. You're a kid. You're into wrestling. What kind of coverage was he getting in the magazines? Did he stand out right away when you start seeing pictures of him in Los Angeles? Yes. Yes. When in, in the sixties, you know, for we didn't have obviously internet or any of that stuff like we do today, Brian. And the, the only source that the average wrestling fan had for any type of national coverage was through Wrestling Review Magazine or Wrestling World Magazine, I mean, and the Ring Rest, the Ring Magazine. Uh, this was even before the era of the so-called after magazines that came later in the 60s and into the 70s, you know. And right away in Wrestling Review, there was coverage of the Destroyer from 1962 on. And if you and I have a complete set of uh, wrestling reviews, and I can tell you that Dick made several covers uh, through the through the decade. And it was interesting because what Dick realized right away, he did something that no other wrestler uh, ever did is he realized that he was, first of all, he was a different type of a heel in that he was a mask guy. So all of that usual, who is he, who's under the mask, who can unmask him, is this the wrestler that will take the mask off? All of that stuff was still used with with the program and the pushing of his character. But the the thing that was different about Dick is that he was a scientific, using that old term for wrestling, he was a scientific wrestler where he could definitely out-wrestle most other opponents. And yet he was a heel because of his, uh, the mask and the gimmick and, and the character he played. And he realized right away that this was his income. So one of the things that he did relatively within the first year 
was he made it sure that he, every promoter that he worked with, he made it understood that he was not unmasking, that there wasn't going to be a climax to a feud or a program or when he was leaving a territory that like other masked gimmicks that were used for other wrestlers, you know, usually that was the blow off of the feud or the, or the time for a wrestler in a territory that he would be unmasked and revealed to the fans. And Dick said, that's not happening. And he got away with it where other, a lot of other wrestlers couldn't because he drew money and he was, he was on top with that destroyer gimmick from 1962 solid until, uh, for the first time around until 1967. So he had a solid five-year run and he, uh, he was on top in California, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Hawaii, Japan, Detroit. He was in the South down in Texas. I mean, up in, uh, up in, uh, uh, Toronto. I mean, he really just everywhere he went, he, he pretty much made his own ticket to success. He would come to Minnesota, he would come to the AWA, but he would not come as the Destroyer. I want you to talk a little bit about that, but George, before you do that, before Dick Beyer arrived in the AWA, what was the history of masked wrestlers in Minnesota? In Minnesota, as it was in most territories during that era, Brian, the masked wrestler was very, very limited in use. And it had to be that way so that the uniqueness of it was there. In Minnesota, and I, want, and I would like to let our listeners know that when I say Minnesota, I'm speaking the AWA territory, which consisted of Minnesota and all of the states and, and cities that uh, the AWA ran in. Okay, so Minnesota is, or as, as it was always known, the Minneapolis office, because that's where the uh, AWA was headquartered at in, in Minneapolis. So if I say Minneapolis, I'm talking the entire territory. Uh, for the uh, Minneapolis territory, the first masked wrestler that we had was in 1961 when we all of a sudden had this big six foot four monster that would come to the ring with a half cape on and red trunks and tights and a red mask with an M on the forehead. And it was Mr. M. And it was the usual story. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know where, you know, who he is. And why did you put on the mask? And his answer was, because if people know, did the wrestlers know who I am, they won't give me matches. And I got tired of promoters not giving me the matches I deserve. So I'm, I'm under a mask. And that was Mr. M, who we had around here for about two years. And that was Un eventually unmasked as Big Bill Miller, Dr. Bill Miller, who was an outstanding, phenomenal wrestler and, a, and again, a, a legitimate amateur champion turned professional wrestler. So that was our first tenor. Now we went from 1962 to 1965 with no masked wrestlers in the AWA. The story behind Dick Beyer coming in, and, and we had mass wrestlers in the 70s and in the, in the 80s as well, but let's just stick with the 60s here for a second. Dick Beyer was working for the 
WWA in Indianapolis for Dick the Bruiser and Wilbur Snyder, who were the promoters behind the scenes and owners of that organization. And Dick had been wrestling for them for about a year as the destroyer. And the unique thing was, is that Vern Gagne and Dick the Bruiser had bought the Chicago territory city. And so they co-promoted it together. Well, in doing so, Chicago fans during 66, 67, 68, and into the 70s, they were always privileged because they had both AWA wrestlers on their cards, and they would have at the same time WWA wrestlers on their cards. And no other AWA territory or WWA territory matches or fans had that, that unique perspective. So in Chicago, Destroyer would come in for the Bruiser and wrestle on those Chicago cards. And in one particular match, he had actually gained himself an AWA title match with Vern Gagne. Now, Vern had known Dick Byer from earlier years in the in the 60s but their paths just never crossed and Vern and he wrestled in a title match and after the match was over that was when Vern and Dick started talking and Vern told him I'd like you to come into Minneapolis and that's when things got interesting because Vern right away like any other promoter had it in his mind that when the destroyer run in Minneapolis would be done, that Dick would reveal himself and move on to another territory, as most would do. Dick made it very clear right from the beginning. He said, I am not going to unmask. The destroyer does not take off his mask. And Vern and he came up with an idea. Vern said, well, I'm going to want you to unmask, and I definitely want you to come in, and we're going to have to make this work. So between the two of them, and and actually it was Vern who said, you know, and it had, I'm going to paraphrase by saying this, it had been published in a wrestling review here and there that some fans had thought or some people had thought that the destroyer was Dick Byer, but it was never anything that was, uh, you know, it was just casual there. It's okay? so crazy that that got into the magazine. Yeah, I, I actually have a couple where I could show you, but it wasn't like they're doing an expose or anything like that. It was, you know, and among other names, I mean, Gene Kaniski was suggested for, for the Destroyer. Uh, Bill Miller was suggested. It was even Buddy Rogers. People said that it was Buddy Rogers under the mask. And the reason they did that was because Dick used the figure four leg lock. But again, those were things that would be put into the magazine just as sort of gossip, so to speak. So what Vern did was he said, all right, let's come up with a better plan. So Vern said, I want you to come in under a different mask. We're going to create a new character. Now, Dick, like any other wrestler, you know, bottom line is they're looking to make a buck, make money in this business and be on top if they can. And so he went along with it. The stipulation was that we will create this new character, but at the end of the run, whenever that run would end, you know, in terms of time in the territory, you will unmask. And Dick agreed to it. 
because he said the other wrestler would be unmasking, the destroyer would not. So we get, and this is where the fun began, in August of 1967 on our All-Star Wrestling TV program, they always had, you know, a, a good wrestler against the jobber talent, the enhancement talent. That's the way the formula was for TV. So on, on this one program in August of 67, the announcers, the ringside announcers, Marty O'Neill and Roger Kent, they make notice. They just make a comment. They said, there's a fan sitting over in the front row of the ringside there with a suit on and a mask on his face. That's all they said. And there was a guy sitting there with a suit and a mask on. The following week, casually during the program, they make reference that that fan with the mask on is back again tonight and really no other mention. So they've, what they've done is they've planted the seed for the home viewing audience. We get to week three. During the course of the program, the masked guy in the front row comes over to the interview area where Marty O'Neill is doing the interviews, and he says, excuse me, and he says, Poli and I remember this like it happened the day before yesterday. He just says, excuse me, I would like to have a match with one of these wrestlers. Well, immediately, the promoter, Wally Carbo, came out, and the local security cop they had there. And he said, you've got to go back to your seat. We cannot interrupt our program here. And they escorted him back to the seat. So we get to week four. This guy comes out of the, out of the seat again, comes over to the interview area and says, excuse me, I really want to wrestle one of these guys on TV. Carbo came out and gave him the spiel that we don't know you're a wrestler. We can't just let any fan come in here. Now you're going to have to have a seat or we're going to have you removed. And they put him back in his seat. Now on this particular program, later in the card, Vern Gagne, who was the world champion at the time, was in a TV match against Jack Pesek. Jack Pesek, for fans who didn't know, was the son of uh, legendary John Pesek from the, the 30s and 40s. And John was actually a recognized world champion. And Jack was a very good, accomplished wrestler. Uh, always had good following in the Twin City or Minneapolis area. So Vern is wrestling Jack Pesek, who is, by the way, sort of in the twilight of his career at that point. During the course of the match, Vern puts his sleeper hold on Jack Pesek in the center of the ring. And, you know, when Vern put his sleeper hold on a wrestler, that was the end of the night because that's when finishing holds meant something. So Vern was going to win the match. Well, as soon as the sleeper hold is on Jack, the mask guy from the front row jumps up on the ring apron, goes up on the top turnbuckle, and comes down onto the neck of Vern Gagne. Of course, Vern falls to the mat. He's cringing. This masked guy with the suit on and the mask puts a figure four leg lock on Vern Gagne. All out pandemonium is reigning in the, in the studio. You know, the announcers are putting this over that this crazed fan, what in the world is going on? 
the referee and a bunch of wrestlers come in. They're trying to get this mask guy to release this hold on the champion. And Vern actually screams and says, I quit, I quit, I quit. And they take the guy off. Well, during the interview segment, they're carrying Vern out, the champion. The mask guy comes into the interview area and he's talking a little more brash now. And he said, for weeks, I've come out here and told you that I wanted to wrestle and you made me look like an idiot. And I just beat your world champion. Now I want to wrestle. Carbo came out, a promoter, and he said, you want to have a match with one of these wrestlers? You got it. You're going to wrestle the crusher. And of course, at that point, that made perfect sense because the crusher was our number one baby face. And in those days, in 1967, Anybody who was anybody, you know, if they got in with the crusher, it was solid main event. Well, that's a way to really get him over quickly. Have him hurt Vern Gagne and then put him right in there with the crusher. Exactly. And the following week at the card that he wrestled the crusher on, he won over the crusher. And immediately you have your number one guy. Now, they played the story out so well because as Vern comes back now and they're, they're asking him, what are you going to do about this guy? Vern uses the, the usual stance that you'd expect from a baby face. He said, well, I'm not going to give this guy the attention he wants. He's obviously nuts. I don't even know if he's a real wrestler and he's going to have to work his way up like anybody else to get a championship match. But the, the way they debuted him, it was orchestrated so beautifully that from that, that August, September of 67 until 1970, Dick Beyer was our number one as Dr. X. He was our number one heel draw. And they virtually, when Marty O'Neill asked him, give us your name. Who are you? What, what, you know, what do we call you? And he just looked at him and he said, you never mind about my name. If people knew who I was, they wouldn't come in to wrestle me. And that's why I'm wearing this mask. You can call me Dr. X. And there you go. The night he wrestled the crusher a week later, he was actually just billed as the mass man because they didn't have a name for him yet, but it's in the program as the mass man. So that was how he made his debut. And as Dr. X, he wouldn't just have a brand new mask. He would have a whole different look so that if you were getting the magazines, you wouldn't be able to easily identify him as the Destroyer. Well, now here, and I'm going to tell you something about wrestling fans here, okay? And this, this is both kind of sad, but it's very true. I, I told you that he had wrestled in Chicago against Vern Gagne in a title match. Now, I don't have the dates in front of me right now, but it was in like... In the early summer of 67, he had wrestled Vern in Chicago as the Destroyer. In August, he became Dr. X in Minneapolis. And he went, there's matches immediately after he became Dr. X, where he was back in Chicago in September and October, and he was wrestling as Dr. X. And... I've talked to longtime fans from Chicago and they told me they never knew it was the same guy. Now that think about that a minute. Now 
Doctor X, if you if you look at the Destroyer, his his whole persona was the white mask with the trim, as we discussed earlier. He always wore the same color trunks that he had as the trim on his mask. So if he had red trim, he had red trunks. Uh, bare chested, bare legs, and he always wore white boots as the Destroyer. In his Doctor X persona, he wore a as a heel now. He wore a black mask. And the original masks that he wore did not have an X on them yet. So it was just a black mask with very close-knit eye cutouts. And he had a like a leather, pla- it looked like plastic or leather that went over his nose. So like the Destroyer mask, you had his full schnoz showing there. But Dr. X had the, the beak on the mask. And then it was very tight around his lips. And... He wore a tunic top, which was black. He would wear either yellow or red trunks. And then he had black tights and black boots. So the reality was that as Dr. X, he did look completely different from the Destroyer. But most fans of that era did not know that the Destroyer and Dr. X were the same person. The only thing that was different was that for that three years from 67 to 70, which was his first run in the AWA, because he, he had a later one. After he'd left, he'd come back again. During that three years, the destroyer slipped from the site, and here we had X. But he also, he also wrestled Vern again in Chicago as Dr. X. And some of the really and I'm not talking dumb people here. I've talked to some fans that are smart people. They claim they didn't know it was the same guy. I'd say that's a talent. Coming out of the Crusher match, how long was it until he got in there with Vern in Minnesota? A year later, they had taken it to August of 1968. And during that first run, they had, they had that first year, they had um, the Crusher, they had Igor, they had um, Cowboy Bill Watts, uh, Reggie Parks, Rene Goulet, Wilbur Snyder, Doug Gilbert. You know, I'm probably forgetting some, but these were all guys. Billy Redcloud, Jack Lanza, who was still a babyface in those days. Um, these were all guys that had had matches with Dr. X and on his way to getting a title shot. When he went against Vern in August of 68, he actually won the title from Vern. Now that that says something too, because Vern didn't always let just anybody win his title. He took the title from Vern, but the reality was is that it was basically to build a rematch. And two weeks later in that rematch, Vern took it back. But he did hold the title for two weeks. And we do have a couple of matches in between there and some spot shows and different things where you know, Dr. X defended the title. One of them was to Igor. But yeah, he did. He won the title. Now, here's here's the other beauty of it. I say this because when I think back to the promotions and how they they built up matches, you know, creating a story, on the night of the rematch with Vern Gagne, so Dick is the champion now, and he's got to defend his title that evening. This was one of the nights on All-Star Wrestling when that night was the card live right after the show. 
And on that card, that TV card, Dr. X was introduced to wrestle on TV and they brought in his opponent to the ring. And this was a newcomer. Nobody had ever seen this guy in the AWA before. And they just introduced him very nonchalantly as being 232 pounds from Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, Billy Red Lions. Billy Red Lions, ladies and gentlemen. Well, I knew who Billy Red Lions was, and I will tell you, I just about crawled out of my chair. I was so excited because I knew that Billy Red Lions had wrestled in Texas and Detroit and California. And I also knew that Billy Red Lions was Dick Byer's brother-in-law, real live brother-in-law. So here's this match on TV with Billy making his TV debut. And on the night that Dick was going to defend the title back to Vern live at the auditorium later. And lo and behold, Billy Red Lions beats Dr. X on TV with a figure four leg lock, the doc's own hold. And that created an uproar in the studio audience. And like, oh my gosh, this guy comes out and then X was furious. He said, you bring in some ringer when I got to wrestle against the champion or, you know, defend my title tonight and so on and so forth. So he goes and he wrestles Vern that night live, loses the title back, but he is irate because he said, they had me so rattled. They brought in this guy, this ringer, and I want this Lions character. So they've got a ready-made feud again coming out of the Ganya match. And of course, he and Billy, again, real-life brother-in-laws, fans don't know this, but they, they always, if I think back to some of my greatest matches that I enjoyed, the Lions uh, Dr. X matches were great because they worked so well together and they had a ready-made feud for the next year. And it went on like that. So that was another great promoting angle. George, one of the things that the AWA is still talked about for are those promos, those localized interviews that really connected with so many people because you had so many great personalities. One of the things the destroyer is known for was his incredible interviews that he did in Los Angeles or other places he landed. What were Dr. X's interviews like when he first got there, and did they connect right away with the AWA fans? They absolutely connected right away. And, you know, what was interesting is that I had mentioned it to you before in that he came out so soft-spoken when he said he wanted to have a match with one of these wrestlers when he was just sitting in the audience. But as his character grew, you know, he, he had anybody who ever heard Dick Byer talk. You know, Dick Byer never needed a microphone because he just had a, a voice that carried. It was kind of rough and gruff sounding. And that was his real voice. And and Dick could project and he just made you believe. And week after week, month after month as the heel Dr. X, they were always throwing every wrestler at him. You know, Bill Watts and and the crusher and the bruiser and you name it, whoever he had to wrestle. And it was always somebody trying to take off his mask. Now they also had a unique stipulation with him that he agreed. It supposedly the story went that when he became a wrestler for the AWA, that he told fans, he said, and the promoters, I will not take off this mask unless I am beaten in two submission falls or two pinfalls in a match. In those days, we always had two out of three fall matches. 
And so he was able to save his mask all the time because there'd be a disqualification in one of the falls. Or there would be, uh, you know, they only pinned him in the first fall and the match went to a draw. The rest of it, the time limit ran out. And I mean, different things that they would use. And every wrestler that would wrestle against him always came up against all of these shortfalls. And as his character built, it was like, who can finally beat this guy? Who can finally take this mask off? The answer was coming up, we don't think anybody can. Well, here's where it got interesting. As we got to June of 1970, Dick had went to Vern Gagne, and he said that he wanted to take some time off. He wanted, In fact, he wanted to take a year off from being Dr. X. And he said, so I think we can start to work on my leaving the territory. Now, it was agreed upon between Vern and Dick at the onset that Dick would unmask when that time came. So in June of 70, all of a sudden, Dr. X has a super secret partner who is a carbon copy of himself as far as the mask, the outfit, everything. I mean, they really did look alike. The same size, similar build, the whole thing. And this new wrestler, this partner, was Double X. So, next opponent for Dr. X. We've thrown everybody at him, fans. We've got the answer. We're going to bring back Mr. M, Bill Miller. They acknowledged that Bill Miller was Mr. M, and Bill Miller came back in. Five years after he had left, or actually eight years after he had left, in his red mask. And Mr. M was going to be the next guy to try and unmask Dr. X. During the course of the match, in uh, July of uh, 70 now, during the course of the match, the referee got bumped. Imagine that happening. And... Dr. X fell outside the ring onto the floor and out from under the ring apron. The fans are seeing this. Of course, the referee, the poor guy is, you know, he's trying to get his senses back. Out from under the ring comes this double X. He takes Dr. X's place and Doc rolls, rolls under the ring. The fans are screaming. The referee finally is coming around. Double X comes in, tries to do a few things. Mr. M clobbers him, gets him down, kicks him down, pins him, and pulls off his mask. And, oh, my gosh, Dr. X has been unmasked. But the fans are the wiser. They, they know that this isn't true. The reality was is that Dr. X was not unmasked. And once again, he saved it. And Double X turned out to be Jim Osborne, who... Side story, Doc told me that because Vern didn't know what to do with Jim Osborne when he was coming in, Dick said, give him to me as a tag partner. We'll have some fun. So it was ingenious the way they played this out. But Double X is unmasked. Now there's got to be a rematch again because Bill Miller says, this is, this is foolish. I want this guy. I want him really bad now. So he has a rematch with Dr. X. Well, in this particular match, Mr. M lost, and Dr. X still has his mask. Now, Dr. X hooks up with Bobby Heenan and Blackjack Lanza. 
because Doc says, I need a manager, and obviously to help me out here with all of the skullduggery all these promoters are throwing around. So I'm going to go with Bobby Heenan. So they have Dr. X and Jack Lanza in a TV match, and they're scheduled the same evening at the auditorium live show to wrestle against Red Bastine and Pepper Gomez. Well, during the course of the TV match, Lanza and Doc seem to have a little bit of miscommunication on their, their teamwork. Bobby Heenan seems to come in and reprimand Dick or Dr. X a little bit. And before you know it, they're fighting. So they have this melee on TV where Lanza and Heenan are pounding on Dr. X. Immediately that night at the auditorium, they changed the main event to be Dr. X against Blackjack Lanza, which Dr. X lost. His mask was removed, but he was all bloody. And he had a towel over his head, and they took him out. So now we go to next week. All week long, fans are buzzing. You know, who is the mask guy? Again, they were throwing out names. Is it Gene Kaniski? You know, it looked like Buddy Rogers. It could have been this guy, but we couldn't see his face. Dr. X comes out in his interview, and this was going to be his exit from the AWA. Before I say that, let me say that in other AWA cities, they did have some unmaskings of Dr. X, but I'll touch on that in a minute. This is Minneapolis. Dr. X comes out on TV to Wally Carbo, and he basically was as demanding as he had ever been. And he simply says, for three years, you have thrown everybody you can against me. And I have wrestled everybody you've asked me to wrestle against. I want a match with Jack Lanza. And Carbo, he says, well, I just can't put a match together. And I don't know if Jack would accept. And I, I just don't know. And he points his finger right in Carbo's chest, and he said, you don't seem to be listening to me. You owe me a favor. I have wrestled everybody you've given me. I am demanding that I want Lanza. You've wanted this mask for three years, and you've thrown everybody at me to get it. Now, I want a match with Lanza, and I want it so bad, I'll take my mask off and hand it to you. Carbo just looks, you know, stunned, and he goes, you'll what? You'll take off your mask? You got yourself a match. Lance and Heenan are furious. They don't want anything to do with them. You know, they play their role, right? Well, so we get to St. Paul for the, the live show, and Blackjack Lanza against Dr. X. The stipulation is, is that to get this match, Dr. X has agreed to take off his mask before the match begins and hand it to the promoter. So before the match begins, Dr. X comes in the ring, stands in the corner with his arms folded like he always did. Promoter Eddie Williams in St. Paul, he was the promoter. He comes into the ring and stands on the other side of the ring. Marty O'Neill ring announcer comes in, stands in center ring. And he tells, he starts to tell fans some things about this masked wrestler, that he was a famous coach, swimming coach and wrestler from Syracuse University. And he wanted to introduce him. He said, ladies and gentlemen, here is Dick 
fire. And Dick took his mask off right there in the auditorium and handed it to promoter Eddie Williams. The match went on. Dick Byer wrestled without the mask. Lanza was obviously the one to be putting him over because Dick was leaving. During the course of the match, Lanza really was the aggressor, beat up on the dock pretty good, and the match was over. Dick lost, and Dick was gone. A couple of weeks later, as the weeks go on, they're talking, you know, what happened to him? Will we ever see him again? But the whole thing was is that he went on this world tour, which was a real deal. Just back up one second. Those previous unmaskings I mentioned to you, St. Paul was the only city that got Dick unmasked and revealed as Dick Byer. He was unmasked in Duluth, and he was unmasked in Winnipeg. One of the matches, it was Lanza that actually unmasked him during a match, and another time was when Paul Diamond unmasked him during a match. Each of those unmaskings, he was revealed to be, his name was revealed to be Bruce Marshall. So those fans never got the Dick Byer explanation. He was Bruce Marshall in those cities. Now, here's kind of an irony, and then I want to touch on the world tour. The irony was is that he had unmasked as Bruce Marshall because there was evidently, as the story goes, a TV announcer and some some head at this TV station or something that had the names of Bruce and Marshall, and they put them together as kind of a rib, something to that effect. But um, here's, here's the funny part. When Dick Beyer, who I gave credit all the time for because of many, many of the wrestlers, Dick has always had a really good memory of his career and a pretty good account of keeping things in a chronological order. Most wrestlers, I don't say this as an insult, but they don't remember who they wrestled last night. They just went in and they did it night after night. And when they look back, they can't put it together. Dick was pretty good about keeping things straight. So when his book comes out, in fact, before, long before his book came out, Dick and I had talked personally a few times about the being revealed as Dick Byer in St. Paul being the only city. And by the way, I have a picture that I took of that night of him without his mask uh, from ringside. But we were the only city that got Dick Byer. And Dick and I had talked about that. Well, in his book, Masked Decisions, which is a great book, anybody listening that wants to know about the doc, about Dick Byer, it's a great book. But in his book, that St. Paul match, Dick Byer does not get mentioned as being Dr. X. He is announced in there as being Bruce Marshall. And when the book came out, I teased Dick. I said, Dick, I love the book. It is, it is so good and so accurate. I mean, I really commend him and Vince Evans, his writer, for doing such a great job. But I said, you and I talked about this, about the Dick Byer thing. And he says, I just totally forgot about it. I overlooked it. I said, well, the book is great nonetheless, but it is true. He was Dick Byer in St. Paul. So that's kind of an irony. Uh, he went on his world tour. And he, what he did is he went back to being the destroyer, and he had self-promoted himself where he had set up matches for many, many months. And he traveled to Australia, 
Japan, Singapore. He was in Canada. And he basically took his family. He wanted to take his family around the world. So this was with first wife Wilma yet and his kids, Kurt, his son, Kurt, and his daughter, Chris. And I'm not sure if Rich was born yet or not. I don't think so. But anyway, he took his wife and kids and he traveled around the world and promoted himself again, going into these territories as the destroyer. A year later, when the tour had finished, he had left the door open with Vern that if he wanted to come back. So obviously when he was done, this was the first territory, Minneapolis, that he was going to come to because once he's done with the world tour, now it's a matter of getting established back into a territory again. So he came back as Dr. X. In his first match back, they had him team up with Larry Hennig. And Larry Hennig and Lars Anderson were a team at the time. On the TV angle, they had Larry, uh, Lars Anderson, who was Larry Hainemi. But Lars Anderson came out with his arm in a sling and claiming with a doctor's note that he couldn't wrestle that night. So Larry had to get another partner real quick, and he brought in Dr. X. During the course of the match, anytime Hennig would do something illegal behind the referee's back, X would reprimand him or tell him not to do it or interfere. And one time he even tells the referee, hey, he used his knee. Look at his knee. Hennig gets upset with it. All of a sudden, Lars, Lars Anderson's arm is not really hurt, and he and Hennig are clubbing Dr. X. Um, this was the first sign of turning Dr. X babyface. I will say this, that when he came back after that year absence, no mention was made that he had been unmasked a year earlier, nor was it announced that he was Dick Byer or any other name. He was simply coming back as Dr. X. It was another one of those times when promoters relied on fans to have forgotten that incident or didn't want them to remember it. Let's put it that way. So the next big thing came was when he was on TV and Ray Stevens attacked him and Ray Stevens got him wrapped up in the ring ropes upside down. His leg was caught, twisted in the ropes. Docs was. And Stevens comes off the top rope and jumps on his knee and takes the ring bell and smashes his knee with it, allegedly breaks his leg. And Doc is carried out. Well, then he was gone because his leg was broken. The reality behind that story was is that Dick Byer needed to have knee surgery, and this was a way to set up the angle for him to be gone so he could have the knee surgery, then come back and have a ready-made feud as soon as he gets back about a month and a half, two months out of the out of the shoot, he's got Ray Stevens. So again, great promoting and setting up future storylines. And when he came back, he and Ray, who had been longtime friends, they they actually wrestled together and started together in the business back in the uh, mid-50s when they were out of Al Half's gym in Ohio. So they were old friends, and you know this just made a natural deal to have them wrestle each other. But that certified that Dr. X was now a good guy, who, by the way, was now wearing a white mask, same closed facial things and the nose piece and everything that was in black, but a white mask with a black X on it. And he was now Dr. X, the good guy. 
So that's kind of the story about how it went with Dr. X in the AWA. A tremendous draw. Just a tremendous draw. Did he ever return after that run with Ray Stevens? And also, George, I know that you got to know him. You weren't just a fan. You became a friend. When did you first get to know him? Well, April of 1970. That was uh, three years, almost three years, two and a half years after he had come to the AWA. And I basically, you know, 1970, I was April. I would have still been 18 years old. I got to know him because the city I lived in at the time, I was growing up in Cottage Grove, Minnesota. The police reserve for Cottage Grove was going to put on a wrestling card as a fundraiser in the local, my local high school, Park High in Cottage Grove. And spot shows, as older fans will know, were, were small town cards that were usually held in gymnasiums or local National Guard armories. And they usually had uh, just uh, three or four matches on a card. And the wrestlers would go to these smaller towns. And they were always unique because in the smaller towns, the the fans from the big city didn't always know about them. In the smaller towns, they couldn't get to the big city. So things could happen in these smaller towns that, you know, sometimes we didn't know about in the big city. But anyway the police reserve were going to wanted to run this fundraiser and they knew that I was really close to wrestling. And I had known Marty O'Neill at that point, because I had driven around to some wrestling cards and things with him. I think you and I talked about that in the past. And um, they asked me if I would be willing to go with one of them to the wrestling office and talk about putting on a card, which I did. So we went up to the wrestling office or down to the wrestling office in Minneapolis. And, uh, met with Bill Casisto, who was an old ex-wrestler, and he was the matchmaker for the Minneapolis Wrestling Club at the time, told him we wanted to have this fundraiser. We had some dates set aside that we were thinking of. And Bill Casisto asked me, he said, uh, did you have some guys in mind that you were interested in having? The first one that came out of my mouth, and I swear this is true, was I'd like to have Dr. X. Now, my motives were selfish because he was my favorite wrestler at the time, but he truly was the best draw. And again, he's still a heel at this point. And then it just so happened that about two or three, well, it was a little bit longer, about a month before that, Pepper Gomez had debuted in the AWA and was pretty over as a babyface. He had had some matches with Dr. X in the bigger cities. And I had said, you know, it'd be great if we could get Pepper Gomez against Dr. X. Bill Casisto says, well, we can see what we can put together. We'll see if we can get that to work for you. And then, uh, you know, we'll get a couple of other wrestlers and we'll put together a good card for you. So we left the wrestling office with basically the main event, if, if it went off the way I had hoped it would. And I felt really good because I said, you know what? I just kind of put a match together here, a, a main event. Well. I didn't meet Doc until the night of the actual card in April of 70. So we're at my high school, ring is set up, crowd is there, and we had our gymnasium held about 3,000 people, and uh, we were pretty well full. So that felt good. And I'm going to be the ring announcer, and I was very excited about that. So this is kind of like my night. I'm feeling great. We're about 20 minutes away from the main event. And or before the card's going to start for the evening, about 
20 minutes, 30 minutes away. And I don't remember who it was, but somebody said to me, they want to see you back in the locker room. So I went back to the locker room. And if I didn't know before this, Brian, or, or didn't have an indication that wrestling was prearranged, when I walked in that locker room, that's when I knew for sure. And here's the story. As I walked in, Dr. X, in full Dr. X regalia, was sitting on one of the, the benches in front of the lockers. And it was in an L shape. Across from him is sitting Pepper Gomez. Okay, I'm feeling good. Dr. X, Pepper Gomez, they're going to be in my main event. Dr. X, he was in charge that night. And he immediately says to me after I told him who I was, he said, uh, well, we've got a, and he's doing this all in his Dr. X, you know, Dick Byer voice. He says, we've got a slight problem. He says, Gomez here has an upper ear infection and he's not going to be able to wrestle. I can't tell you how my heart just about, you know, fell into my shoes, but he kept talking. He said, so here's what we're going to do. And he was going to start telling me what we're going to do. And then he says, um, but before I go on, uh, I got more bad news for you. He says, uh, Blackjack Lanza, who was supposed to be in our semi windup match against, ironically, Bob Windham, who later became Blackjack Mulligan in his career. But that was going to be my semi windup, which was a great match in itself. He said, Jack Lanza is not here. He uh, is stranded in Chicago. So now I'm down two wrestlers, I'm thinking. But the one thing I knew for sure, I don't know why Gomez wasn't wrestling. I do know that he was there. So my only guess was is that he really wasn't feeling well. That was the only thing I could comprehend from it. But now what are they going to do? Well, so here's what X tells me. We had an opening match of... Lee Matson, who was a veteran TV loser guy, against Kenny J. We had Wyndham against Lanza for our semi windup, which I was looking forward to. And then we had Dr. X and Gomez. He says, Well, we're going to have to do it this way. And Doc says, We're going to take me, meaning Doc, me and Wyndham against. Madsen and Jay for our main event in it, make it a tag team match. And then we'll have two preliminary matches out of that. So I had a moment of silence. I don't know where I got the courage because I just met this guy. I said, um, well, Dr. X, is it possible we could do it a different way? And I still remember him saying, we can do it any way you want to do it. How do you want to do it? And I said, well, how about if we put you and Lee Matson as a team against Bob Windham and Kenny J as a team? And I said, because if we do it that way, then we've got a main event guy on each team. He says, if that's what you want to do, that's the way we'll do it. I don't care. So I walked out of the locker room feeling, oh, now I got to go tell all these people that Pepper Gomez isn't here and Jack Lanza isn't here, which I had to do. But I was so proud of that moment that I had told him. 
And that's when Doc and I became friends because after that, we were always buddies. But the match, by the way, turned out to be one of my favorite tag team matches of all time. And I always said, well, that was the night I put the main event together on that one. <laughs> so he, he was a good friend all through the years. He would talk to me about his matches. He would talk to me about where he was. I'd get notes about where he was wrestling when he was the destroyer. And of course I kept up on him. And, uh, when I got to the, uh, late nineties, I was attending Cauliflower Alley Club reunions on a regular basis, and the Destroyer was always there, and he was instrumental. He went and got me on the executive board of the Cauliflower Alley at the time, and I was the only non-wrestling person involved, shall we say, on the board. Because at the time I joined the board, there were guys on the board like Nick Bockwinkle, Red Bastine, uh, Vern Gagne, Dick Beyer, Tom Drake, the wrestler from the South, Killer Kowalski, Penny Banner, the lady wrestler, uh, Dean Silverstone, who was a promoter in the Pacific Northwest. But anyway, here's me, the only non-person. And Dick Beyer was the one that said, we need to have him on the board. He will help us. He will be good for it. So that was one of the, uh, you know, this is 20 some years ago now, but this was one of the big highlights for me with Dick. He, he was there. And um, when it came time for uh, 2013, I was going to be given the uh, historian award at the CAC. I had been off the board by that time. I had stepped off and uh, I was going to be honored as the historian of the year in 13. And I was at the Gulf Coast reunion in February of 13, and, and Dick was there, and him and I were talking, and I told him, I said, hey, you know, you heard I'm going to get the Historian Award at CAC, and he said, yeah, I'm, I'm well aware of that, and I said, well, I have a favor, Dick. I said, I was wondering if you would uh, maybe be so kind as to be the presenter of the award to me. And Brian, I only wish you had a visual right now because I'd like everybody to see Dick sitting at the table with me. He took his hand and put it on top of my hand. And he said to me, and I'll quote it, he said, that would be an honor. And now you talk about markout moments. I mean, I, I've been around wrestlers all my life and I've been around, you know, I, I knew it wasn't real and, and we've talked about things and but when he did that, when he said it would be an honor, I remember I went up to my hotel room after that and I called my wife and I said, you know, I got to tell you something. I said, I'm excited about, I'm, I'm excited and I'm humbled for this historian award I'm going to get. It's a great honor. But I said, I just had one that was a bigger moment for me than anything. I said, and I told her the story about the hand and saying to Dick that, you know, that he would do it, that it was an honor. I said, to me, that meant more to me than this award is going to mean. And uh, so the night of the uh, banquet at CAC, when uh, the award presentation came about, Dick went up to the podium and literally put me over talking about what I meant to wrestling. And I'm just sitting back there and you talk about again, you just like, I don't believe this is happening. I mean, it meant more for me for Dick to do that. And I knew it came from his heart. And he did it. 
And, you know, through the years, he, he had been to my house and looked at different things. I, I still remember as I as I taped this with you, I'm in my what I call my wrestling office. And uh, I think about when Dick was sitting here and going through old programs and stuff and telling me stories about all the different matches he'd been in. And he was he was such a great storyteller. And he, he I wish I could probably put a book together with all the little fun things he said. But uh when I'd go to Cauliflower Alley reunions, he always told me, got a place for you at my table. You sit there. And, you know, those are things that you uh, you just never, you never forget. And, you know, I, I've said this before with different wrestlers, but with Dick Beyer, it really, really meant a lot. And the, this past week, I mean, I had um, I had not talked to him personally since July of last year. Um, I always made it a point to call him on his birthday. And July 11th was his birthday. So I called him and we talked for a while. He wasn't doing too good because he had just come off of some heart surgery and, you know, he wasn't going to be able to travel as much as he wanted to. When I got his Christmas card uh, this past December, there was a note in the card that he was really afraid that he wasn't going to be able to make CAC this year. And, but he was looking forward to getting out again and just slowing down a little bit. Well, this past week, um, in fact, it was you, Brian, you had sent me a note that you had heard that Dick wasn't doing well. So I, I did some checking because it had been a while since I had uh, talked to him or anything. And uh, I called his wife, uh, Wilma, on Wednesday. And uh, we talked for about a half hour. And uh, Wilma told me that uh, for the past uh, week or so that Dick had been in hospice, was 24-hour hospice at home. And it was a setup where they had the nurses and things that could come into the house. But she said, Dick wasn't doing too well. And I asked her exactly. I said, you know, my goodness, what, uh, what's, what's been the problem? And she, she gave me the story from the heart surgery to some intestinal tract problems and different things that were going on. And she says he's gotten to the point where he's not recognizing anybody. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I told her, I said, well, I, I hope you're taking care of yourself through this. And she, uh, she said that the, Daughter Chris was living next door and she was there and they were holding his hands and trying to keep him, you know, involved in the family conversations and things, but he wasn't really responding. She did tell me that a uh, visit a week earlier that Dennis DePaulo, and I don't know that name won't mean anything to a lot of people, but Dennis DePaulo is the son of the great wrestler Ilio DePaulo from the 50s and 60s. And he was very close with Dick Beyer, wasn't he? Yes. Oh, yeah. That's what I was going to say. Uh, Ilio DiPaolo and Dick were long, long time buddies. And Ilio has a, a tally, or had, he's passed now too, but he has a scholarship fund that he set up. And I had actually sat with Dennis and his wife and Dick and Wilma and Kurt Beyer at the last CAC that he attended. We sat at the banquet together, but um, he said he recognized Dennis when he came in, but he wasn't recognizing anybody else. So that was good. But when I left Wilma on the phone, we pretty much, you know, I, I, I did ask her, I said, so what is the prognosis? I mean, is this something that doctors think he's going to pull through? She says, well, they're not giving him much hope, but we just don't know how long. So I said, well, do me a favor. I said, please let him know that I called and I asked about him. And she said she would. And I, and I, uh, I hung up the phone and I did. I ran over to the local card shop and I got a card, a blank card. And I wrote a bunch of nice things in it, and I sent it off in the mail that same day, Wednesday. 
Well, at uh, about one o'clock on Thursday, the very next day, um, I had missed her call, but I had a, a phone message on my phone that it was from Wilma, and she said she was sorry to say that Dick passed away. And I got the call about, I think it was about 1.10, and she says around noon. So I'm in Minnesota, which is standard time, and, and you're you're on the East Coast, which she is. She pretty much called me right away. Um, and that just knocked my socks off. And for the whole last four days, I, I really haven't even, I wanted to put a tribute out and type things, and I just can't. I can talk about it, but I haven't been able to sit down and put it into words because uh, he was a great, great guy. And what an accomplished, you know, you talk about his in-ring attributes and what a great worker and wrestler and friend he was. He's another one of those guys that you never hear another wrestler say anything bad about. They all loved Dick Byer. And of course, there are so many of his fellow wrestlers that are gone now, but I can only imagine. Something that's really special on this is this morning, I answered my phone and it was Irene Hennig, who is Larry Hennig's wife. And of course, you know, we lost Larry a couple months back. Uh, Irene called me and she said, I just wanted to check in with you and see if you're doing okay with Dick's passing. So Irene and I talked for a while and, and uh, she's doing fine, by the way. But uh, it, it just like she thought of me and she knew that Dick and I were friends. And, and she was telling me some stories about her and Larry and Dick together when they, uh, when they wrestled against each other. And, of course, they were friends outside the ring. As I speak of Cauliflower Alley, I want to share a story that others have shared it, but I was there when this happened. And I shared it with Irene this morning, and she just laughed so hard. We were at... This goes back about uh, maybe 2004 or 2005. I'd have to look up the year. Larry Hennig was at CAC, and so was Dick Beyer. Now, what you need to remember about Dick Beyer is that he is the one wrestler that when he comes to CAC, he's always in his destroyer mask. And the interesting thing is, is that that is the only way anybody would ever recognize him. Because if he comes in as Dick Byer, nobody would know who he was. So at every CAC reunion, you will see that you did see the destroyer there. At this particular one, we were at the banquet, getting ready for the banquet. And Larry Hennig, as everybody was entering the room, here comes the destroyer through the door into the banquet room. And Larry Hennig went up to the podium, grabbed the microphone. And he yells out over the microphone, he said, Dick, take off the mask. It's over. And Beyer, in his Beyer voice, he shouts across the room, he said, I could still kick your ass, Hennig. <laughs> Talk about laughter. And that was the that was the fun those two had together. But um, Dick Beyer, you know, he's 88 years old. Death will get us all. None of us will escape that guy. And uh, he just brought a lot of joy to wrestling, to people. And when you look at the accolades that he had in Japan and the popularity, I had mentioned to you, Brian, off air that he had received in the past five years 
two of the highest honors that anyone can get in Japan. One in 2012, when he was presented with the Japan Council General's Accommodation for Lifetime of Promoting Goodwill Between Japan and the United States. And then in 2017, he was awarded the Order of the Rising Sun Gold and Silver Rays Award, which is Japan's highest civilian honor. And here was a guy who up until just a couple of years ago was still coaching the swimming team in Syracuse. Up until, again, just a few years ago, he was taking an annual group of boys every summer over to to Japan for wrestling tournaments. He was involved with the Boy Scouts, with the Masons, with various charities, various fundraising groups. He played Santa Claus for kids handicapped children and that sort of thing. And he was talked to Kurt, his son, who I've talked with many times, even though his dad was always on the road as a kid, he said he was always our dad, you know, just a good man. And when he left, you know, and just a little bit of a sidebar, Wilma number one and Dick, when they finally separated, they were still friends They remained friends. They raised the children together. The only reason that Dick and her parted was that the road life and the travel was just something that she could no longer deal with. And he said they remained friends. Then he met a nurse who was Wilma number two, and they obviously became together. So just a good man. And uh, it's sad when we have to lose him. But uh, I lost a good friend. A very, very good friend and my number one favorite wrestler of all time, period. Boom! There it is, a 605 Super Podcast look at the sensational, intelligent destroyer, Dick Beyer. Of course, we send our condolences to his family and friends, but what better way to celebrate his life than by telling stories and honoring his legacy in professional wrestling. But until next time, The 605 Super Podcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. For all the great wrestling historians that appeared on today's program, I'm the great Brian Last. Tally-ho!